Scripture reading today is from Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Stephen, it's good to see that you've hooked up with the four-wheel drive version. (laughs) We're just waiting for you to get some chrome and flames and a few accessories there. Yeah, I think you'll be set. Good work. Well, I just wanted to take a minute and share from the hymn that we sang earlier. The church has one foundation, number 348. Several things. Every now and then I just get struck. And this hymn is in some ways a hymn that ties in well with last week's sermon on church's remnant. And I'm looking at particularly the third verse. Though with a scornful wonder... Men see her sore oppressed. Though foes would rend asunder the rock where she doth rest. Yet saints their faith are keeping. Their cry goes up how long. And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Scornful wonder. We do live in an era in which religion is viewed with some Some scorn, pessimism at least. The church is not yet sorely oppressed, at least not in this country. But God's people have always had their enemies. Oppression is a constant. And our critics would rend asunder the rock where we rest. I love that line. We're not talking about Uh, something trivial here. We're talking about the rock, capital R. In other words, greater even than the rock of Peter's confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We are speaking of the Christ himself. And attacks on the credibility of Christ, the existence of Christ, and all of that continue in ever greater frequency and sequence. And yet the, fa- the saints endure. They keep on. They cry how long, but they don't give up. And one day, the struggle is over. The night of weeping is the morn of song. And I love the poetry of that. Ah, contemporary? No. Fabulous? Absolutely. Every now and then I just... Um, Wow, I think one day I'll do a whole sermon on hymns. Pretty amazing, many of them. Well, last week we talked a little bit about the church's remnant. We've been doing a series, for those of you who are new or visiting or have never been here before, we've been doing a series on church. And hopefully, for those of you who've been, it's not a series of uh, sort of arrogant self-justifications, but rather (laughs) what it has been is something that helps us biblically understand why the energy we put into getting together is worth it why the resource, 
Why the time? Why the volunteerism? Why all these things that are called for when we consider gathering as a body from week to week and uh, in a broader scale, uh, universally, why this is, is somehow worthwhile? What does the church collective get to do that we as individuals don't always get to do? And in some cases, that it, uh, with some of the things I've been talking about, there's a dual reality. There's a sense in which we're individually recipients of some aspect of uh, benefit or grace connected with uh, Christ and church. But just as often, uh, there's a flip side to that, and while there may be an individual component, there's also a collective component. And that is the case in today's topic. There is a sense in which we are individually children of God and heirs of God, and we'll get to that. But there's also a sense in which the church as a whole is an inheritor, an heir of many things that are precious to us, many things that have endured through the centuries, many things that will carry us forward until the night of sorrow yields to the, the morn of joy. So today I'm going to go through a few texts uh, about that, and we're, we're just going to look at that for a minute and consider what collectively it might look like to be an heir. Remember that when we talked about remnant, that didn't come from a particularly arrogant point of view either. I'd rather eschewed that. I focused on the fact that a remnant is a leftover that has endured and that goes on to re, re sort of populate the kingdom of God, as it were. That, that more than that, um, the remnant is a group that lives out the commandments of God. And what that means is that it lives it out not just by uh, keeping the Sabbath per se, but it lives it out by loving God supremely and our fellow men as ourselves. So the ethical and social components of the arrival of the kingdom of God are lived and understood and carried out in the lives of remnant people. That is a key distinction, a key understanding as we think about what it means to collectively be part of something. And I was careful to uh, leave the gate wide open to distance us just a little from the sort of sectarian, um, uh, what do I want to say, the sectarian connection uh, to the idea of remnant to a particular body in a particular time with a particular name. The, the body of Christ uh, encompasses more than we can imagine and more than we can know. And he ultimately gets to be the judge of who that is. So, just a little recap for those who weren't here last week or who might wonder how the series has progressed. And uh, let's, let's turn and look at a few things scripturally today. One of the first New Testament mentions of the concept of heir is in Matthew. And we're going to turn to Matthew uh, 21. It's a story that's repeated in Mark and Luke. And it's the parable of the tenants. Matthew 21. 
It starts in verse 33. Jesus said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized, seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them and said, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw his son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took and threw him out of the vineyard and kill him. Therefore, the, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those servants? And those listening said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. <laughs> it's a day of judgment, isn't it? Now this parable really has uh, little to do with today's overall topic, but it's an interesting use of the word because it's speaking to the most common, most prevalent understanding of the word. That is to say, a firstborn child, typically a firstborn son, would be an heir to the family name, the family priesthood, and the family fortune. Not that there wouldn't be an apportioned, uh, left, uh, an apportioned amount left for the rest of the family, but the power transfer and the spiritual power transfer and the property transfer went primarily from father to firstborn son. That's why stories like uh, Esau and Jacob are so interesting because Esau is the firstborn and Jacob usurps the birthright. It's this, this inversion that takes place. The story is a parable about God's interaction with Israel. He sends the prophets. He sends those who speak on his behalf and they are disregarded and killed. And he sends more and they are disregarded. And so finally he sends his son and his son is to be disregarded and killed. And this is the prophetic imagery of a parable. Jesus will be this son who goes to these tenants in the vineyard who decide that if they can get rid of him, they'll be the inheritors. And uh, it's a powerful, powerful uh, parable. And of course, the audience itself wants to see these evil tenants judged unaware perhaps that they are the evil tenants sort of like Nathan before David the story of Bathsheba and the stolen sheep so Jesus uses this word in this context in the most common way it was understood heir that is to say someone who's going to receive the blessing and or the property of a father now, Paul takes it a different direction. Let's turn to Acts 3.25. Actually, it's not Paul. I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's Luke. 3.25. Paul also goes fresh directions, but we'll get there. Peter is speaking to the crowd and he says, and you are heirs of the prophets 
of the covenant God made with your fathers and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Well, let's back up. Let's back up to verse 24. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many have spoken, as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant. This is the first collective use of the word. Jesus had used it in the sense of an individual, a son, who would receive the property of the father. And now Acts uses it, Luke uses it in a collective sense. Peter is speaking to a group He's talking about the same sort of thing, the prophets in this case, the word of God, the covenant, the things that have been given to Israel. And he says, you are heirs of these things. You are recipients of these things. You're the ones who are going to receive them. You get to hold them and carry them forward. Well, this is a pretty profound thing. Because what it means is the faith of our fathers basically goes from generation to generation. What it means is that they're inheritors not just of the laws of God, but they're inheritors of the promises of God. One of the, on a, on a little aside here, one of the spiritual breakthroughs I had about stewardship was I realized that God didn't just own everything and he didn't just want the good stuff. He didn't just want to take my successes. He didn't just want to take my profits. He didn't just want to take uh, my increases. God wanted to take my losses. God wanted to take my failures. God wanted to take my decreases. So when it came to life and when it came to money, I could trust him because he wasn't just constantly having his hand in my pocket, so to speak. He was there to share both the good and the bad. He was there to be God in the midst of my living with its accompanying ups and downs. Well, I use that just to illustrate. We're inheritors of something bigger than ourselves and not just something that takes from us but something that gives to us. The law, yes, but also the covenant. The covenant that says, I will be your God, you will be my people. The covenant that goes back to Abraham that says, I will make of you a great nation, I will give you an inheritance, I will bless you and your descendants throughout the earth. That is something powerful and wonderful. And those listening to Luke, those reading this account or those there that day as Peter spoke are hearing these words, your heirs. And it's not just individual, it's collective. It's powerful. How many of you have received an inheritance? How many of you were, two of you, okay, great. How many of you were excited by it? All two of you. Good. Okay. I was afraid you were going to stand up and tell me some story about how it alienated you from the rest of your family and how probate was a mess and how in the end there should have been $200,000 and you ended up with 
uh, sense. You know, I, I, th- I thought it was going to be one of those uh, situations. But an inheritance can be a blessing. And here in Acts, this is the word. You are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. Well, turn to Romans 4. We can move quickly through these. This sort of basic word study again. Romans 4.13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of it all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were. You don't look too impressed. That's okay. I'll let you chew on that one a while. That's an amazing passage. It's an amazing passage. Book of Romans, letter to the Romans, Jews in in Roman territory to be sure, but Gentiles too. The Gentile mission is now established. It's it's going. We're past the period of, of Acts in this. Paul is writing And he says, this is an interesting thing I want you to get a hold of. Your heirs and your heirs of a promise. And your heirs of a promise that comes to you through faith, not law. And moreover, as you you inherit that through faith, he said, it's not something, well, let's, let's just make sure we stay within the boundaries of it and stay clear on it here. 4.13. He said, so that it may be grace and may be guaranteed, verse 16, to all of Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but at those who are of the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all. As it is written, 17, I have made you the father of many nations. Now what is happening here is an opening of the definition of the recipient of the promise. The text is quoted so that the audience knows that the promise doesn't just refer to Abraham's seed in terms of Isaac, but Abraham's seed in terms of Ishmael as well. And Abraham's seed figuratively, because Abraham's seed is the seed of what? I heard it. That's right. Abraham's seed is the seed of faith. And all who have faith and all who believe in the God of Abraham are what? Abraham's seed. And thus they are heirs of the promise with Abraham. We usually think of Romans 11 as opening this door branches grafted in from the Gentile side to the Jewish side and so forth. But even very early on, 
Paul is laying this, this foundation for us to understand that as a church, as a people who will take this on faith and share in the promise and the faith of Abraham, we're inheritors of God's grace in that way. Now, who did the law come to? Moses. Sinai, correct? Do we have the law prior to Moses recorded in scriptures? No. And it's recorded in two places, right? The Decalogue. It's recorded for us in Exodus what? 20 and Deuteronomy 5, correct. Those two places record the Ten Commandments for us. Did law exist prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments? Of course. But what Paul likes to argue is that it is in the giving of these Ten Commandments then being made explicit that now you have a physical standard or measure, a codification, if you will, from which an action can be compared and guilt can be deduced. In other words, the law, the presence of the law, now informs us of what is contrary to the law. And by informing us of what is contrary to the law, tells us what is sin, what we are guilty of, and what we deserve to be punished for. Make sense? But he says, you can build your faith, and you, you can try to build this whole salvation thing on two things. One is adherence to this law through these early covenants. Or you can go back and understand the real root of the covenant is not law at all. The real root of the covenant is God's promise, God's act towards men, God's grace, and God's initiation. You see, we, we don't really truly, this is going to be heresy to some of you, I, I don't know that we really truly seek God. I think once we're aware, we can make an effort to do so. But I believe God always has and always will initiates. God is the one who initiates. And he initiates not from the standpoint of law. He initiates from the standpoint of grace. And that should be so freeing for us. Oh, please, not that we get to go do anything we want. That Please don't go there with yourself or with me or anybody. That's not what it's talking about. Never has, never will. What it is talking about is the essential foundation of what it is that we're built upon. And this is vital theologically. If you think I'm rambling, I'm sorry, I'm not. It's vital theologically. Why is it vital theologically? Because if we're based on the same foundation as covenant, that is to say the promise made to Abraham, then that becomes fulfilled in whom? Christ. That's right. And the group of Romans being spoke here expands to the church as a whole. The church can encompass both Jew and Gentile. And that is why the text says in Galatians, there's no distinction now, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Those distinctions are gone. What we have now is a level playing field at the foot of the cross. What we have now is an inheritance that's universal and that's shared. 
based on one thing, faith. That step of belief. That attempting to grasp it. Are you with me or have I lost you? We're inheritors. We're heirs of a promise. A promise that gets expanded from Abraham's seed to all who believe. A promise that declares us collectively, not just individually, heirs. A promise in it that hints at remembrance. Remember I said early in this series that one of the church's charges, one of the church's privileges, one of the things that the church got to do collectively that we couldn't do individually was remember. Do you remember that? We get to mark and remember through the Eucharist, that is to say through communion, through the Last Supper, the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, and we get to remember so much more. And part of the collective remembrance of the church is captured in the concept of being an heir. Because what it means is that we remember the promises of God based on grace. The covenants of God based on his initiative. His reaching out toward us. His desire to reconcile himself with us. That's powerful. That's powerful. Galatians makes it clear that God has made us heirs. To be more explicit about Romans, let's turn to Ephesians 3.6. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. This makes explicit the idea of the church being folded in and this being collective. For this reason, I'm going to start in verse 1. I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about this administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly in reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given me to preach Christ to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, for which ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. 
I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Could he make it any more clear? I don't even have to do much exegetical work on this with you. I think it's right there. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been folded in. We're heirs. Heirs of the covenant. Heirs of the promise. Heirs of the grace. Heirs of the sacrifice. And this is never the property of only an individual. We individually get to choose it. We individually get to affiliate with it. We individually have choices to make about our own eternal destiny, whether we're going to live in Christ or whether we're going to live on our own, whether we're going to live for God or whether we're going to live for self. We have those choices to make. But once those choices are made, there is a new together. There is a new plurality. There is a gathering called church that stands as heirs of the promise and heirs of the commission and heirs of the mission. Those are big words, but they're packed with meaning. Through grace, we inherit. Through grace, we inherit. Through grace, we inherit. First the promise, then the covenants, then the new covenant, then the sacrifice of Christ, and then we inherit the gospel commission, and we inherit the church mission. We become inheritors, heirs of a belonging that translates into a purpose. Let me say that again. A belonging that translates itself into a purpose. What that really means is that if we are truly heirs, if we're truly part of this thing called the body of Christ, if we're true in our sense of being a part of something called to something greater than ourselves it gets reflected in who we are as we fulfill the command of God to love him supremely and our neighbor as ourselves that goes back to what we talked about last week and it gets reflected in our passion to share with others that they too are inheritors of God's grace. They too are reconciled to God in Christ. They too have eternal life if they will but accept it. They too have a place in the vast and diverse order of the kingdom of God. They too have purpose and meaning and worth. They too have a calling. And that goes to each of you. And when we bring this together, nothing stops it. 
the church doesn't become triumphant because it's the church. It becomes triumphant because the Christ who called it into being and who inhabits it and its members has brought forth a group ready to live a new mission and a new commission and be the body of Christ in the world. Not just heirs. Heirs with Christ. And that goes even beyond. Well, we could uh, look at other texts today. Titus, for example, says, having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. I want to speak to that briefly. It's another vein, if you will, of sort of like a tree with branches. This is just one. But what Titus is talking about here that's of interest is the hope of eternal life based in grace again is something that also transcends even church. There is an heir that there is an inheritance that I'm speaking of that we as a church receive, that there's a collective uh, perspective to. But ultimately, the great inheritance is not just the mission and purpose of the church. It's the consummation. It's the fulfillment of all of those things. Going back to our hymn, the church has one foundation, 348, verse 4. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest not just the people of God here and now. Divided, regionalized, sometimes unclear, beleaguered and besieged, bedraggled and bebattled. No. This is the church that has emerged. This is the body of people who are saved. This is the salvation of our God in its final consummation. So you are indeed heirs, each of you. What you do with your inheritance is your choice. But you are heirs of eternal life, each of you. Together we're heirs of a great nation. We're heirs of a promise. We're heirs of the many gifts of God. Together, we're heirs of a mission and a purpose that transcends each of us but speaks to each of us. I think it's another great reason God called together church. I think it's another great reason, another great metaphor for understanding why the energies we put into this place are worth it. 
Why the relationships and the connections we form are designed to bear fruit ultimately for this kingdom of God. It's because it's the way God called it. It's the way he wanted it. It's the way he took a people and ultimately worked through that people to graft in other people. It's the way he expanded his kingdom and grew it. And it's the way he wants us to grow his kingdom as well. The declaration is not, you are unworthy. I don't think that's a great way to approach anybody. I think the way to approach everybody is to say, did you know you are an heir?